Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs, benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theater masters, founders, and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Welcome, Clay Drinko. I'm so glad you can be on Improv Interviews today. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful that you're here. And we met a few months ago through our mutual friends, Angela Nino and Lisa Bainey and the therapy group in Chicago. Yeah, I was uh, interviewing them, asking them questions for one of my Psychology Today articles. And they suggested, well, they said I had to talk to you because uh, they uh, learn, continue to learn so much about uh, improv, how to use improv in therapy from you. And I'm so fortunate that they uh, guided me to you. Well, thank you very much. And for folks that may not be familiar with you yet, um, you went to Tufts and you got a PhD in theater and drama mm -hmm. and yep. taught there for a while as well. You're as the author. Of, yeah, huh? as part of your doctoral study, um, my job was to teach acting classes. Yeah. Great. And you also are the author of Theatrical Improvisation, Consciousness and Cognition, which I hope folks will go out and get after our chat today. And uh, you've been teaching for a while. And when did you start improvising? Was that when you got into theater? Improv has been, I've been improvising since undergrad, which has been over uh, I can't believe it, but it's been over 20 years now I've been improvising. I didn't know really what it was at the time, um, but my friends that I just met in college, they were like, you're funny, you should do this. Um, and I, I went and as, as an 18 year old, I was very good at just, you know, going, going with the flow. And I was so lucky that I got in and it, you know, here I am today, it changed the trajectory of my whole existence getting into improv and and you write for psychology today and what is it that you write about in psychology today yeah it's called play your way sane and the subtitle is improvisation science and the everyday so you know anything connected with applied improvisation uh, i've written on uh, improv and anxiety improvisation and dementia um, I'm really starting to research uh, in your area, improvisation and therapy. Um, so I, I, I just, anything in that realm, I want to explore it from as many different angles as I can. And, and one of the things I really want to do with it is to take, um, there's, there's more and more research in the field. And so I want it to be a platform where I can dig into all that research, interview people who are doing those studies and put together articles that everyone can get something out of. Well, they're tremendous. And I hope everybody starts following you as I do and, and get your articles because they're just terrific. Now you've interviewed a lot of people in the improv world and, and in improv and therapy. Do you, 
Do you have some special moments or some special thoughts that came out of some of these interviews, perhaps an aha moment or something like that? Um, I think with one that you mentioned um, with the improv therapy group, I think um, what they were saying about connecting, and I haven't really written about this too much yet, but connecting improvisation more directly with cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and so for me, that is what has triggered my current research. I think there'll be a, more than a couple blogs about improv and therapy. I'm sure we'll be talking more about it. Um, so anything that's really directly linking, and that's the, you know, right before we talked, I was reading an article about you know, how improvisation um, and therapy, you know, they, they just naturally go together in a lot of ways. And it's just now, um, I guess, being more formalized. And so it's, for me, it's just exciting that this is the time where all those things are happening. Because when I wrote Theatrical Improvisation, Consciousness and Cognition, um, there just wasn't a lot of sources there wasn't a lot of research and so you know fast forward just seven years later and so many different people are approaching it from so many different angles i feel like the hard part for me is deciding you know what one narrow thing do i talk about this month a difficult decision isn't it um yeah. so uh what about some of the people you interviewed. One of the people I think is a pioneer in the field of improv and therapy is Dr. Kristen Kruger in Chicago. And I know you spoke with her and she had one of the first validated research projects on the efficacy of improvisational theater and anxiety. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that was, you know, that was really important to, to interview her. Um, I do most of this through email though um when i'm asking people these specific questions um i think also peter felsman and his work um is really important because he had one of the first studies with improvisation that had a control group um and so i was really excited to tell people about that study and i'm always saying you know more research more research more research needs to happen um and so I think that idea that where we can do these studies that have a, con a control group and his finding really was that um, improv helps people with their uncertainty tolerance. Um, and he, he did his study in a very narrow way with this control and measured really specific things. And I think that's, I'm excited about research that's getting more specific in what it measures um, and anything that gives you know, give some more heft to some of the observations. Because when I started, it was just a lot of sort of qualitative information where for me, I got into it because I had my own personal experience with improv um, that I had to then figure out. I had to, to explain it. And so I think that's where we were 10 years ago. It's just a lot of firsthand accounts. When I improvise, this is what it feels like. And so now having work of Kristen Kruger and Peter Felsman and, you know, all the other people who are, are researching on improv and Parkinson's and dementia, dementia and anxiety, 
um, really any any of those things. I'm so excited to talk to those people. And and for me, I you know I just want more people to know that they've done that work so that more research can happen. That's so wonderful. And as a therapist, you know, I'm hoping we get enough validated research so that it can become a reimbursable, uh, uh, valid therapeutic intervention, just as we had uh, music therapy and drama therapy and art therapy are all certified now as valid treatment methods. So that's part of my interest. But let's go back to when you first started improvising and what kind of um, value benefits did you get and what kind of maybe struggles did you have with improv? Because sometimes, you know, they say we learn from our failures and in improv, there are no mistakes. So I think for me, once I, you know, it was, it was difficult in the beginning to, to do the drills, like the yes and drill. You know, at the beginning of every rehearsal, you would have to, you know, line up in the two single file lines, two people go in, someone initiates, you say yes, you repeat, you add on. And it was, you know, I just wanted to like be creative and, and do all that. So I think that was difficult in the beginning. Um, but once that started to click and it became very habitual to, to yes and, um, after about a year, I started experiencing these um, almost unexplainable things would happen. So I would, we would warm up before performance. And it, we were lucky because it was a very popular uh, improv troupe on campus. Like we'd have a packed house and a, a rowdy, excited audience. And so I remember we would warm up. And then as soon as I was going on stage, I stopped remembering. Like I would get really excited to go on stage and then I would just go blank. And the next thing that I remembered, the show was over. And this happened multiple times. And, you know, we would debrief and eat pizza and drink beer after and, you know, watch the VHS and talk about what we did right, what we did wrong. And I still wouldn't remember the show. Um, and so, but when I watched the tape, I was hilarious. I was charismatic. I was just really in the moment. And I, I was not those things on a day-to-day -day basis on campus. And so that really was what I, I had to figure out because when I talked to therapists, um, um, anyone in psychology, they would say that is, you're like repressing a trauma or that's, like a stress, you know, they, they described it in negative terms. And I knew they were wrong. I knew that what was happening was really good. I was so in the moment that I didn't have to worry about anything. And so that, that to me was the benefit. I always wanted to figure out what is improv thinking? Um, and I, I guess my passion is trying to figure out how do we have some of those elements on a day-to-day -day basis and not just when we go up on stage to, to perform. I, and so that sort of set me on the trajectory that I'm still trying to figure out. I'm still interviewing people, asking questions, um, you know, writing for the blog to figure out, you know, what is going on with improv and how can we use it in all different shapes and forms in our everyday lives. Now you were performing at Tufts, your school, initially, but did you join other improv? This was, this was undergraduate before grad school. So this was at the College of Worcester. 
Okay. Yeah. Great, great part of Massachusetts. No, this it, is Ohio, College of Western oh, Ohio. Well, it's a very small. Now I got one more mistake, and I'll go for the gusto here. Um, <laughs> sorry. So you're from Ohio. Yes, originally from Ohio. And then graduate work at Tufts. Yes. Yeah. Before that, I went to New York University and got a master's degree in performance studies. Oh, that's a wonderful program, isn't it? That's just yeah. With Richard Schechner. Yeah, it was great. Wonderful. So did you perform after graduate school at all? Were you I did. I, yeah, I did. I went to the city to be an actor. So I moved to New York City. Uh, I took classes at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. Um, Second City had a program in New York at the time. Um, so I went through the entire program there. Um, I've done classes at IO. Um, I've also just done improvising in the city and, you know, joined sketch comedy troops. And um, then there's IO. I took classes at Magnet. I went to Berlin as part of my research to take a workshop with Keith Johnston. Um, so, you know, all, all over. Lot, lots of improv. Well, uh, tell, tell me a little bit more about interviewing uh, and being with Keith Johnstone. What was that like? Um, that for me, um, I, I still talk about that workshop um, when I'm talking about education um, and how to be an effective teacher. Because, you know, when I read his, his book, Impro, he talks a lot about status. And that never, that wasn't how I learned improv um so i didn't really get it i didn't really embody the idea of status but then i went and took his workshop and he embodies this idea of status in an incredible way that i still think about um when i'm teaching and on purpose he lowers his status as a teacher so instead of being this expert and sort of being an intimidating presence he on purpose played up being old and, you know, his eye, you know, being a little, you know, sort of, uh, you know, not super focused. And so he, he really emphasized his, him being like sort of low status and being this old guy. And he told us that he did that, um, I think on the second day of the workshop, because he's, he said, like, this is the whole idea of status. If I come in here as this intimidating presence, this expert on improvisation, I'm not going to get what I need from the students. They're not going to step up and be brave enough to make mistakes and, you know, throw caution to the wind and, you know, do what it takes to improvise. And so for me, that example um, just still sticks with me anytime I'm teaching. I think about how am I going to lower my status and maybe it's making mistakes or needing help from my students so that they can raise their status um, and be more in a, a helping role to me. Um, so I, I think for me, that was such a defining moment to see it, see status in action. You know, as a therapist, I've had the same philosophical kind of approach for many years, even before I did improv, about, although I have some knowledge my patients don't have, obviously, from my education, but 
we're both human beings and we're here together. And we both share human sufferings and joys and all of that. So I think this idea of status is very important in the therapeutic world as well. And did it actually change your impro game or not? Um, I, I think it did. I mean, he, he's much more into this idea of trance, um, almost has like a non-Western approach to, to impro as he calls it. And that, that really helped me explain, um, I think what was happening to me when I wouldn't remember anymore is, is that his exercise, one of them, one of the exercises is, I never remember what exercises are called, so I don't know what it's called. But in the exercise, you have to be two characters. So you're kind of your, I mean, it might sort of equate to like your ego and id. So you're, you're doing this scene where you're like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm gonna sit down. And then you have this other character who's kind of egging you on in a strange way. And just by doing that back and forth where you're yes anding, you're like some sort of naughty self. Um, I, I really became this like super inappropriate, like a character I would never play if I thought about it for a second. Um, and so he really has exercises like that, that I, I think are really interesting to sort of bring out the unconscious um, that I do think sticks with me for sure. Uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Daniel Weiner, who wrote uh, Rehearsals for Growth, which is a, a training program as well, um, studied with John Stone as well. And uh, I basically started with a person who had been in comedy sports, but had also been at Second City. So I got very involved in Spolin training, doing Spolin workshops and training. I'm sure you did a lot of Spolin at Second City mm -hmm. as well. So was there a way to bring those schools of thought, Spolin and John Stone together at all? Yeah, I think they line up a lot. I mean, it's when I was writing the the academic book, you know, there there's so much overlap and both of them, if I remember correctly, were, um, you know, both of them said like, we came up with this. Like, you know, it's not like we were sharing notes, you know, it's like Spolin came up with it, Johnstone came up with it, but I was really amazed with the overlap. Like there is, there's a ton of overlap. And I think that's, for me, more validation for what improvisation is and can do is that there, there are a lot of similarities. Um, and as an actor, I always, and as an acting teacher, I was always, my approach was always take what works. I, I'm sure just like in therapy, um, take what works and, and leave what doesn't. And so I, you know, along my performing journey, you know, I took what worked from John Stone, I took work from Spolin, from Strasbourg, which is method acting. Um, it, for me, it just makes sense to just experiment, try, and then just add more tools to the toolkit. Right, there's an expression, um, take the best and leave the rest. Absolutely, yeah. yeah I would tell, yeah, I would tell my acting students that, and this seems, you know, this was part of me lowering my status and really getting them to uh, to step up is I would say, you are all Dora the acting explorers. And so all I want you to do is, is try, don't be too cool for school, you know, and just see what happens. And if you hate this exercise, totally my fault. 
scrap it and we'll move on to the next one. And so just that sort of approach, I think is, that's always how I was as an actor. And I hoped that my students would take that on as well. That's great. I'm sure you're a wonderful teacher. Now, have you stopped teaching improv or do you still teach occasionally? Uh, yeah, I do workshops. Uh, I just had a workshop in Portland. Um, so I'm still doing some so freelance workshop stuff, um, but I'm no longer, you know, a, a nine, I guess a seven to three uh, public school teacher. Um, I'm actually on a, a leave of absence right now from uh, um, school. I'm taking care of my daughter, who's just two years old. Oh, how beautiful. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Now, you taught for, in the school system in New York City? Mm -hmm. Yes. And where did you teach? I taught at a school in the Bronx and then in Brooklyn. Um, really small schools. I got to st start a theater program at the school in the Bronx. And I'm always bringing in the improv work into the, into the classroom. And uh, I wrote about it, too. Um, it, I, I wrote something called the improv paradigm and it was how to take three principles of improvisation and use it in the classroom to promote creativity and learning. And it's, it's the same ideas that we talk about all the time in improvisation. Uh, but in the classroom, I was really focused on listening, uh, collaboration and openness. Um, and I really found that it was most beneficial to the really reserved shy students which I think is really interesting. And I, I'm seeing some more writing about that. Um, but for me, I think it's because of the listening component. Like if you're a more shy, reserved student, it seemed like improv helped you use your listening skills that you already had and then bump up to you know being more outgoing so that they would just contribute more to class. So I was still writing about improv in an academic sense, even when I was a public school teacher. It's fantastic. I'm sure you're <clears throat> a wonderful teacher. Now, since we're living in the age of uncertainty right now, we're speaking on uh, April 24th, 2020. How has this impacted your work and your philosophies in terms of going through what we're going through now? I think it has made me, uh, it's definitely made me more interested in improvisation as it relates to therapy and mental health. Um, I know a lot of applied improv facilitators are, are you know, with, with I'm sure varied amounts of success trying to move things online. Um, and, and I think that's great. I think it's important. I think that will continue to go on even if and when life returns to normal. But I think, I don't know, for me, I've been pretty, I've been pretty bummed because for me, it is so much about the embodied experience of being in the room with people. Um, and so this has been a really um, yeah, it's just a really sort of sad, solemn time in some ways, because I'm now, it's more clear to me than ever how important it is to be able to high five someone and, you know, pat someone on the back and say, I got your back. And those, I'm not a touchy feely person at all. Um, but this has really made me realize that 
it is so important. Like human embodied connection is so important. Um, so that's what I keep thinking about as I'm trying to keep, you know, keep writing, you know, keep some sense of normalcy going through this. Absolutely. And it's, it's important to acknowledge our feelings, whatever they are, and not try to repress them or keep them down. So when we're feeling sad, allow ourselves to feel sad. Yeah, this is not, yeah, it's not normal. Like to, for me to just say, I'm just going to shift everything online and keep doing what I'm doing. Like that's definitely missing the point. For me, I have to acknowledge this is not normal. This is how I feel about it. Um, and then figuring out what to, what to do from that point. Great. So um, I, I want to go back to the idea of touching people. I, I thought of a game where before you give a line, you have to touch somebody. Mm. I played one like that before you give a line, you have to touch somebody in the cast or whatever. And um, I wonder if those days will come back again. I'm really hoping touching will come back, but we don't know about that. I know. I know. I have um, one of my projects is called Play Your Way Sane. It's different than psychology today. It's just my website, playyourwaysane.com. And, and with that, I've taken 12 lessons from improv and uh, created what I call everyday games. Games that you can do, you know, go into the grocery store that help you with mindfulness, with connection, with finding some sense of purpose and joy in life. Because um, part of my issue after writing this academic book was I wasn't walking the walk. Like it was great when I was on stage and then as soon as I left the stage, I was overthinking. I was a constant worrier. So this whole project sort of stemmed from that. And one of my favorite everyday games is just called High Fives for Everyone. Um, because I think if you just go around like just high-fiving, like it's, I, I can't imagine someone high-fiving like and being sad. Like it's really one of those, it's a hard thing to do. Um, and, and I would do that. Like I'd go out with friends and we would just try to collect as many high fives as we could. And for me as sort of a socially anxious person, it really forced me to, um, you know, face that social phobia. And, and it rewarded me by seeing people like engage with me and chat with me and want to talk with me. And, and so that's one of the games for me that I really miss. It sounds very silly, but I really miss a game like High Fives for Everyone, which is incomprehensible right now. You know, you, you can't high five six feet away with gloves and masks and all that. Uh, now, you mentioned being socially anxious. Was that a pattern in your childhood or when did you become aware that you had some social anxiety? I mean, I'm not, I'm not diagnosed or anything, but I, um, I think I started to realize it. Um, I think once I started to settle down a bit and become a little more mature, you know, maybe in my late twenties, I would realize I would go out and I would be the one sort of wedged between like the grandfather clock and the wall and everyone else is like mixing and mingling. Um, and I couldn't imagine like I would look at these people who would just go and, and introduce themselves. And I started to realize like, that's, that's just not me. Like my brain can't understand how were they doing that? Like it, it almost looked like a superpower. And I think when I was younger, I just, I didn't think about it and I just did it. So I think it's something I realized about myself when I was older. Um, and so a lot of the everyday games and my interest in improv as it relates to, to therapy and mental health, 
a lot of it has to do with social anxiety, anxiety. Um, and it, it seems like that's where a lot of the research is as well. Improv is such a great way um, to like kind of a great exposure therapy. Like you are rewarded when you're improvising as I am when I improvise um, because you can't be worrying about what you look like or what people think about you because you have to worry about, worry is the wrong word, but you have to focus on your scene partner and you have to focus on whatever the aim of the game is. And so while you're doing that kind of focusing, it's very liberating because you, you can't be focused on what do people think of me? Am I good enough? Or, you know, whatever those fears are. Um, I, I actually run several classes online now for social improv and anxiety. And uh, it's a wonderful gift for people once they start to break out a little bit and take some risks. And it's interesting. I know a lot of players who suffer some anxiety and in spite of it, get on stage. And I think this story about going on stage and forgetting everything is a beautiful story. And it, it also reminds me of the mindfulness. And I use a lot of mindfulness in my work and I, I'm sure you do as well. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, my favorite ways of thinking about it was from my, one of my interviews. I was interviewing people, some of the best improvisers at IO in Chicago. And somebody and anxiety was more common than you would think. Like a lot of people I would see on stage and they would be improvising an entire like Shakespearean, like Elizabethan style tragedy or comedy. And they were funny and uninhibited. And then in real life, you find out they're anxious and reserved and awkward. And so somebody I, I interviewed it, talk, he talked about it as the you know, the line around the stage as the threshold of anxiety or like the threshold of nervousness. Like as soon as you went across it, like you were free. It was this like liberated experience. And I really related to that idea because that's how I felt. Like, you know, my daily life, I'd have whatever worries or anxieties. And then as soon as I was on stage, I didn't have to worry about any of it because I could just switch into this improv mode where I was so focused on my fellow players and in whatever it was we were doing um, that I didn't have to, to think about any of that. And that's really what I try to do with the everyday games is to, you know, some of the simple improv exercises, like um, you walk around the room and you point to things and you just call them whatever they are, like chair, tree, light, um, and then you switch it and you point to things and call them the wrong name. You know, instead of an apple, you call it a, a tree. Um, and that's a very simple way to, to be in the room, right? To be present in whatever your actual environment is. Um, and it seems so simple and I always took it for granted as a performer, but then after not performing anymore. I wanted to have those experiences in my everyday life. So if I feel myself spinning a bit, that's the game I play. I literally point to things and I say mailbox, tree. And just that, that very simple act just helps me stop thinking and just be where I am, which is exactly what you're saying about mindfulness. That's a great, I love that game. It's a great example of a, a game that gets us in the present moment. And, and that's the piece about it. If we're thinking, we're not improvising. 
Yeah. So that, and that's hard for people who think a lot like I do and you do. We have yeah. a lot of thoughts going on in there. And uh, so I wonder now with everything that's going on in your life, what you're thinking about for your future. I mean, what do you think? I mean, we know there's a lot of unknowns. We'll leave that, you know, we'll let that aside for a moment. But what would you really like to be doing? Because you're doing some wonderful things right now. No, oh, thank you. That is uh, very interesting that you asked. Um, this is still very, uh, you know, it may or may not happen, but I've become so fascinated and intrigued with improvisation and mental health that I am, um, I am considering going back to school to, to pursue a master's in social work and to really focus on mental health. And um, I, I don't know if it's going to happen or not because there are so many unknowns, you know, I, who knows where we're going to be in six months, but um, if it's something that is feasible, um, I would love to go back and get my third master's degree. Um, but I, I do think a master's in social work would really allow me to um, advance the conversation um, about improv and mental health in a way that I, I feel like I can't really do without that piece. Well, of course, I completely endorse that as a social <laughs> graduated from NYU, best social work school I think ever. <coughs> <laughs> and I uh, would really love to see you do that because it's a tremendous program, a tremendous degree. And the, the, my, the faculty is just so wonderful. You know, wherever you go, I'm sure you'll find a good school. But of course, NYU is near and dear to my heart. So that would be tremendous. And I think you're already contributing so much to the field. I hope you feel proud of what you're doing today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's, I mean, it's sometimes hard. We were talking about that embodied thing of like face to face um, and with blogging, with writing for psychology today, or even writing books, that element is kind of left out a bit. Um, so that I really appreciate you saying that um, because sometimes you, you know, I write an article and I press publish and who knows, right? Like who knows the effect it has. So it is really invaluable to have these face-to-face -face moments where people say, yeah, that is a, it's a good thing. So and thank I, you. I, I, I'm sorry. No, I, so thank you. I really admire that you admitted to something that I struggle with a lot of times is I'm not being a good improviser in my daily life. I'm not carrying the principles over. And it's kind of like that um, imposter syndrome that we talk about, you know, oh, those people thought I was a good teacher, but no, I wasn't that good. And or I'll compare myself, which is a deadly habit to do. Yeah. But all those things happen in our minds, I think. Yeah, and I think for me, as a teacher, being really honest about that is lowering my status so that my students and I can be more on even equal terms so that everyone can get something out of the experience. So for me, it's, it's okay that I have that as long as I'm honest about it, as long as I admit that, yeah, I'm going to give you this exercise that is really great for being mindful. However, let me be the first to say, I'm really garbage at being mindful nine times out of 10. But that's why, you know, and even a lot of research is showing that Im improvisation for anxiety is 
and dementia is effective while it's going on, but when you stop doing it, there, there are, I don't know of any studies that show somebody doing improvisation a year ago is making them less anxious a year later. And so for me, it's this thing that has to be a habit. And so how can we figure out ways that we can take things from improv every day? And, you know, it's like exercise or meditation. Um, that's part of what I want to figure out. And, and I love hearing about how other people are figuring it out is, how do we do this daily? Well, you know, we teach what we need to learn. So I find that's very true yeah. in practices as well. Well, um, it's a beautiful weekend here in Naples, Florida, but you're upstate New York. Yes, yes. Nice there today, you told me. Yeah, the Hudson Valley. I mean, we need, we need all the rain so it can be very beautiful in May, but it's really been raining for a couple weeks and next week it's not going to stop. So it's very rainy here. But I would imagine one of the joys you're experiencing is the time with your daughter. Is that? It, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, she's going to be three this summer and um, a lot of what I'm, I have been researching and I'm interested in um, you know, I really get to enact on a daily basis with her um, because there is no better improviser than a two and a half year old. Um, and so I really just try to, to sort of yes and when I can. Um, and it's, it's really helped me, I think, as a parent to, if I didn't have the yes anding and the improv thing, I think I would be really uptight and really concerned with messes. And with a two and a half year old, like you, for me, I do have to do the yes and thing where I'm like, you wanna roll around in the mud? I wanna say no to that, but like, let's get on the correct gear and just go for it. Um, and so it's really, I mean, what better improv lesson than to just see a toddler just yes anding for their life. Yeah, they're so beautiful at that age and other ages as well, but they're beautiful and they're funny with not, not meaning to be funny, but they're unintentionally very funny. Well, I have a, a, a budding comedian, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, but she's very into uh, to potty humor already, so, which I'm not, so who knows? We may have a, a jokester on our hands. Well, that'd be great. Why not? <laughs> so are you doing any more acting or are you more focused with the improv today? Or uh, I'm, I'm no longer acting. My last acting work was in 2015, I think. I was on Law & Order SVU for a brief moment. Yeah, it was, it was I look back on those days very fondly. Um, but I, I think for me, I wasn't using all my different capabilities and, and skill set when I was acting. I feel like I didn't have to be smart. I didn't have to be thoughtful. Um, or, you know, for me, acting just felt like sort of one note, if, if that makes sense. And for me, teaching um, and doing what I'm sort of stepping into now, I, I feel like I'm using everything, every degree I've ever gotten and every experience that I've ever had. And I think that's why I'm interested in improv and mental health, possibly going into social work. I feel like it, everything I've done with performance and theater, um, dabbling in the psychology of it, I feel like it's all, it all goes together and uses every skill I have. 
Absolutely. I think all of the different things we've done in our past contribute to who we are today and what we have to offer. Yeah. And, I mean, I used to take dance classes and art classes and all of this stuff, and it was leading me to a more creative process in my life. And yeah. you're extremely creative, and I really value you as a friend today, Clay. Oh, thank I, you, Sam. I am, and I'm so honored that you took the time to do a podcast with me. Just brilliant. And uh, if you had a yes and for our audience, a yes and or a suggestion regarding improv, what would it be today? Hmm, what would it be? I think, I think to, one of the things I, I try to do is to just take an inventory. So for me, yes and doesn't necessarily in fact, it doesn't at all mean just going along with whatever anyone says. So, but for me, I do try to take inventories of how much am I saying no? Um, and then I try to look back and think, why am I saying no? And you can take it or leave it. There are some really important reasons to say no, 100%. We need boundaries. Certain things need to be known immediately in real life, right? But I learned so much by just keeping track of my nose. Um, it's helped me to be a better parent because I really learned that I say no because I don't want to clean up a mess or I don't want to watch my daughter struggle. But those are on me. Those are my things. A two and a half year old needs to struggle and needs to make messes because that's what I still do as an almost 40 year old. And she needs to learn how to clean up the mess and how to persevere through struggle. And so for me, tracking my nose and really being honest about why am I saying no and do I want to keep that or do I want to start saying yes, I think is a really important experience. So I would say you don't have to take an improv class necessarily to gain from what improv has to teach everyone. I totally agree. And again, it's been delightful speaking with you today. And I'm sure we're going to be speaking again soon. Absolutely. And I wish you all the best. And until we see each other again, I'm going to say adieu to my very talented friend, Clay Drinko. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.